Turn with me here to Ezra 9. Ezra chapter 9. We're going to be in 9 and 10 this morning. Alright. So 9 and 10 are the last two chapters in the book of Ezra. Um, so it's like we've reached the finish line, but not quite, because as we've mentioned before, Ezra and Nehemiah are one unit. So Ezra's ending here, and chapter 10 actually ends pretty abruptly, uh, but next week we pick the story right back up where we leave off in Nehemiah chapter 1, and Pastor Lou will kick, kick off that section of the book. So even though Ezra's ending, uh, the story of rebuilding, this post-exile rebuilding continues. And in the book of Ezra, we saw the focus of, of rebuilding this temple. Ezra chapter 3 through 6 really dealt with the building of this temple. We saw God working uh, in the midst of even some adversity, whether it be by other people or just by the Israelites themselves getting in their own way. Uh, God works, and in this temple, the house of God gets rebuilt in Jerusalem in the middle, in the midst of of this Persian Empire, uh, the temple was erected. And we saw that happen. And after they build the temple, chapter 6, they celebrate the Passover together. They're worshiping together. It's a great. And in chapter 7, where we were at last week, we saw Ezra come on the scene, finally, the guy who the books called Ezra. Uh, chapter 7, he comes onto the scene. And he was a guy who was zealous for the law, in chapter 7, verse 10, told us that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So the temple was finished. The word of the Lord was being proclaimed. Ezra was putting in place these statutes that the Lord had, had commanded back in the law. Things were going good. The hand of the Lord was upon them, protecting them through the, the trials and the, the different difficulties that happened even in chapter 8 when he's gathering the priests. And all that leads up to things are looking good, and that brings us to chapter 9 where we're at this morning. And what we see today in these chapters, uh, sin, sin that needs to be dealt with among the nation of Israel. And we're going to look at these chapters through there are three headings. We have the sin, the prayer, and the response. Pretty easy. Um, SPR, there's no significance to that, but I don't have alliteration. So, spur. And the big idea, the big idea that, that I want us to see, that I want us to catch as we go through this, there's a lot of text here, but I want us to see that we need to recognize and confess our sin. We need to cling to the goodness and the grace of God we need to put our sin to death. That's what we're going to see in these two chapters. That's what I want us to, to take away from this. So without further ado, let's, let's dig right into chapter 9. Uh, we pick up right where we left off in chapter 8. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It starts off, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with people of the lands. And, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. 
So there's a, there's a problem. There's, a, there's an intermarriage problem happening here. And at first read, it would appear that the, the officials are coming up to Ezra and almost to like pour forth like racist gossip. Like, do you know who Israel's marrying? And guess what? And, but it's not that. I just want to say that. It's, this is not um, a racial superiority thing in this passage. This was not a gossip thing. Um, this, this complaint was brought up uh, because it's a real problem in this context. And it's a problem that needed to be dealt with by a leader. Most likely brought out of the conviction. You know, Ezra was preaching the word of God in chapter 7. So out of conviction from hearing the word, because the, the word is living and active and it brings conviction, I believe that the context would support that these men were not coming as annoying busybodies, but convicted leaders desiring to see a change in the people. And so the problem that, that was faced here was a large-scale problem that needed to be dealt with in a large-scale way. So they went to Ezra. And again, <clears throat> I said it's not, a, it's not a race thing, so what is it? Well, if we look at verse 1, it says, They have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. It's not just they haven't separated themselves from the people of the lands, but the, the problem is the people of the lands have these abominations, these, these different idols, these different rituals, these things that take the Israelites away from focusing on God and focusing on worshiping other lowercase g gods. Interracial, the, the inter, intermarriage isn't the issue. We see in, in Scripture all different kinds. Uh, Moses and Zipporah, she was a Midianite. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites are on this list. Boaz marries her. And from that line comes David, the king of Israel. And from that line comes Jesus Christ, the king of kings. So it's not the intermarriage that's the problem. It's, it's the worship. The marriage to these people of a foreign land, the problem was they, they, were, they were leading the, the Israelites to what's referred to in verse 2 as faithlessness. The Israelites were marrying outside of the Israelite people and they were compromising their beliefs. They were worshiping other gods. They were doing other things that they shouldn't have been doing. This is a bigger issue than just land divides. And it's, it's, it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. God said to them, He said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. There's a couple problems that we see just by looking at that text alone. Um, He said in there, you must devote them to complete destruction. That's what he commanded them back in Deuteronomy. It sounds, sounds rough, but that's what God said to do. But we see names on the list in Deuteronomy that are on the list in chapter 9. So what does that mean? They didn't do it. They, they didn't follow through. They didn't... And now it's biting them on the butt. It's back. 
As the old adage goes, old sins cast long shadows. It's coming back to haunt them. And why did God forbid the marriage? It says it even most clearly here. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. It's not a race thing. It's a worship thing. The nation of Israel was to be set apart as God's chosen people. To be light of God's splendor to the nations around them. That's, I mean, that's why they were set apart. Just like us, as the church, we're called to be salt and light to the world for God's glory. And the more we allow other things, other influences uh, to, to come and, and hog our attention, to, to steal uh, our attention away from where it should be on, on Christ, on the gospel, on, on ministering and living on mission, the more we allow other things to, to influence us in that way, the dimmer that light begins. Which brings me to my decoration. I'm sure many of you thought, there, this is a construction site, this is not a living room. Why is there this lamp? I like to illustrate. Light. That's a 100-watt bulb. Okay, I'm not messing around. Now, what happens, I mean, this is nice. I mean, you can read it. It's nice. Now, what happens, this wall is great because I can just hide stuff. The more we let different things influence us, if this catches fire, we have this door here. That's the cold door. That's pretty deep snow. And there's exit. Okay. The more we allow different things to just influence us, they start small like pillowcases. And they start to cover it. And we keep letting these, these different influences come. This lamp's going to fall over. You can already tell. Like, it's not really giving off too much light. I don't think I need to pile much more on here to get the idea. It's barely a lamp at all. It's now a laundry rack <laughs> for unneat, messy laundry. That's what happens. That's to be light, you need to shine. And when you allow these other idols, these other gods consume you, like Israel did in our passage, that light is dimmer. You're no longer fulfilling the mission that God set us for. I'll turn that off. I'll leave those there. That's the problem. What are we allowing to dim our light? What are we, what are we allowing to, to hog our attention? It's not racial superiority. It's not gossip. It's a problem of worship that needs to be called out. That's why this word, the word faithfulness, faithlessness, the opposite, faithlessness was used. The term, the term means that their, their faith was literally no longer in God. It has gone someplace else. Taking foreign wives, they were, they were influenced away from God. They were, they were going towards the gods of that land. James Hamilton says in his commentary, the returnees of Israel have endangered the promise so that they can cuddle up with snakes. They have forsaken Yahweh for idolatrous spouses. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes to the horror of sin and ask Him to cause us to feel the same horror when we are tempted by things that would lead us away from the Lord. That's what He says. 
nation of Israel at this time was but a blip on the radar compared to all the other peoples of the world. They were, they were a small remnant that would survive this exile, that would return from this exile. I mean, if you're a small community in the midst of this, this sea, this world of different people, you need to remain true to the God who protected you and saved you. They needed to stay true to the doctrines, laws, and traditions that, that was given in the law. Because if they just blindly give in to worldly assimilation, well, that would mean that little remnant goes, it's gone. They needed to stay true. And thankfully, that's in God's hands. Same for us. If not for the work of God in, in our lives and the lives of His people, we would be so lost, we'd be so faithless. But we don't need to live in that hypothetical because He is sovereign. The Holy Spirit does lead and guide us. So the officials bring this news. They bring, they bring up this sin. And when they bring it to Ezra, he reacts very differently than I'm sure most of us might react or that we've ever seen. Continuing here in verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled the hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. There's some significance to this reaction. This, the tearing of the cloak and the garment, this was a sign of great distress and grief in the culture. His reaction was not, was not just like one of like, ah, oh, those silly Israelites. Here they go again. Let's go talk to them. No, he was, he was grieved. He tore his robe. He rips his hair from his beard. Uh, all my bearded gentlemen in here, one of the worst feelings in the world is getting a beard hair ripped out. I mean, he, he tears it from his head. He tears it from his beard. You have to be so sad and you have to be so ticked off to just do that. And what it shows is that he, he took this seriously and he was just shattered by it. He was crushed by it. The things that broke God's heart broke his heart. And that's what causes Ezra to, to weep so frantically. Are our hearts broken over the things that break God's heart? From a cultural standpoint, not even, not even just a, a Christian standpoint, but a cultural standpoint, there's, there's things that used to um, upset people just in culture, even just in America. There were things that were deemed inappropriate and things that were offensive, and that's completely changed, almost like weirdly so. Um, I'm sh- sure many of you guys heard about uh, a Super Bowl commercial that was, that was stopped from airing uh, for a domain, a domain company, internet domain company. I'm not going to advertise for them, so I'll just leave it vague. And what happened in this commercial was there was this puppy, it gets lost, uh, spoiler alert, uh, this puppy gets lost, it's, it's trying to find its way home, and this cute little dog finally makes its way back, and, and the owners see it, embrace it, and go, oh good, we're selling you. Because they built a website on that domain company, and they found someone to buy the puppy. Somehow that was offensive. And the ad did not make it to TV. It made it all around internet, so I mean, they got their point across. But for some reason, that was how offensive that people would sell dogs. Like that hasn't, you know, pets are wonderful 
Someone's got to sell them. But the same company, and someone brought it up at the, the, the party I was at for the Super Bowl, said, but no one had a problem when the same company was just degrading women. Super Bowl after Super Bowl. I mean, they didn't have commercials any other time, but all of a sudden during the Super Bowl, it was like half-dressed women, and it's like, well, that's for that site. But no, those made it to TV. We just see a complete change here um, in what's offensive. Now cute puppies and whatnot is apparently the worst. <sighs> what in the world? <sighs> we need to keep focused on Christ. We need to keep reading the Word. We need to, to keep looking around at this world and just seeing the, the utter depravity. We don't need to look very far and These things should break us. And that's why we live on mission. Because we see the things that are happening. We see this upside down world and we go, this is the world that needs the gospel. This is the world that needs Jesus so badly. We need to be in the word. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily so we can be effective missionaries to minister to those in in this world, in in our communities. The things that break hearts, God's heart, do they break ours? And in his mourning, continuing here in chapter 9, Ezra is then joined by others. And I love the description of the people who join him. It says, uh, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel joined him. We reckon our, they, they, were, they were people who, who trembled at the words of God. And trembling, you know, it, some people think trembling is just like, utter fear and, and terror because of something bad, but trembling, trembling happens when you're just in the presence of something that's just greater and mightier and more powerful than you are. Uh, we recognize the people who tremble at the powerful words of God. Do we, do we, do we see the, the words in the, in the Scripture and does it make us tremble? Does it, does it make us, does it fill us with awe? Does it, does it, does it, punch us in the face when we need it to? Does it comfort us when we need it to? Do we take these words seriously? Do we just take them with a grain of salt? It's just, you know what? This is, I don't like that one. I'm just going to rip that out. This one's good. This one talks about love. Ooh, this one talks about sin. Nah, nah. He wouldn't, God wouldn't, he wouldn't talk about that. Do we take it seriously? continue on here. <laughs> a lot of text to go through. So Ezra fasts and he prays and he gets up and he goes to the evening sacrifice and we pick it up here, verse 5. It says that he, he fell to his knees and spread out his hands to the Lord, his God. And he prays. This posture, this on his knees, his hands spread, shows two things. It shows humility before a holy God, and it shows a need for that God. This posture of being down on your knees and your head bowed shows the humility, and that hand just spread out saying, I need, I need you, I need you right now. It's a very similar posture to the same one we saw of the uh, tax collector in Luke 18 uh, who's in the temple and he's he's praying and he's beating his chest and he's saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's he's on his knees. He's 
humbled in the presence of a mighty God. That's the position Ezra's in. And Ezra prays, he says, picking up in verse 6 and 7 here. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Take a pause there. Ezra begins this prayer with the recognition that they're in a fallen, sinful state. His posture is humility. His words demonstrate that. And he says, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. He feels the weight of this. He, he, he can't even lift his face to God. He's blushing like he's embarrassed. He can't even lift his face, lift his face to God. And then what sticks out to me in that prayer, he, he's not praying God, I'm ashamed to lift my face to you because of all these terrible people I'm around. Sinning left and right, I'm so, I'm so ashamed of all of them. No, we see a word scattered throughout this prayer. Our. I'm ashamed to lift my face to you because of our iniquities. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our, our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He doesn't pray to point the finger he, he prays knowing that he is a part of that community. He's a part of that family, that nation. And he feels the weight of that sin. And he knows that he needs the Lord. That's why his hands are spread out. He didn't marry the women from the foreign lands, but he feels the weight of that sin like it's his own. He joins with his people. He pleads to God on their behalf. Do we tend to look more like Ezra in, in the face of sin? Or do we be, tend to be more like that person pointing the finger? Just to go back to Luke 18, do we look more like the Pharisee? There's the tax collector who's humble and is broken over his sin, and then there's the, tax, or then there's the Pharisee who's like, I'm just glad I'm not like that tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like these people and these people and these people. God, you have made me awesome. Are we like that? Do we grieve when the body grieves? Do the, do the, do the sins of, of others bring us to the feet of God saying, God, I am sorry? Does it bring us to repentance for our own iniquities? Do we take a step back and, and relate? Now, I'm not saying we don't call out sin. We're called to do that. We need to do that. Out of love, we need to do that. But we can't act like we're sinless in the process. That's what I'm saying. We need to take a look in the mirror. We all need to help each other and work with each other in dealing with that. That's what I'm saying. In the midst of seeing our, our own sinfulness, we need to be humbled. And then we also need to be reminded of the, great, the greatness, the goodness, the grace of God. And that's how Ezra's prayer continues. Picking it up in verse 8 and 9. It says, But... Now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. 
For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So as his prayer, it begins. He's recognizing the sin. He's recognizing and confessing the the sin. Remembering not not only the, the intermarital sin that's happening, but also the sins of the past. And then that leads him to God. That leads him to go and recognize how much of a contrast to sin God is. And he, he reflects in the, the goodness and the grace of God. Verse 8 begins with a, a word that we probably take for granted, but this word, but. He starts off, we are sinful. We've, we've done this. Our iniquities are, are higher than our heads. But a brief moment of favor has been showed to us by the Lord. God has left us a remnant. God is gracious. Remnant referring to those Israelites who made it out of the captivity. They've been returned from exile. God has left that remnant. We're sinful, but God has given us a brief moment of favor here. A remnant. To give us a secure hold. The secure hold refers to like a, a nail in the wall or a, a deep uh, a tent post in the ground, something secure that you can hold on to. God is, has left them a remnant and he is securing that remnant. He, he's the one securing it. He's giving them a firm place here in Jerusalem in the midst of being, over, uh, being under a foreign king who they have favor with. They've been granted permission to rebuild their temple there's all these things happening because God is being gracious and showing them a brief moment of favor here. That's, that's the phrase, brief moment. Compared to the past 70 years of their life, this is, this is great. And, and this is also brief, this moment of favor, in the grand scheme of things because it's, it's, a, it's but a taste of the blessing that is to come. See, this secure remnant is in place so that the one, the ultimate Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can come, who doesn't bring forth but a moment of favor, but an eternity of relief. Jesus would come as the one who will conquer sin and death once and for all, and in Him we find eternal rest. In Him we find Favor, because not anything have we done, but because of everything that he does. So yes, this is brief. But in the long run, we get to taste eternal rest in Christ. And this remnant isn't one of happenstance and Israelite luck. We see God's hand in it. The favor has been shown by who? By the Lord. The remnant has, has been given, it says, We've been given a remnant. Paul even talks about this in Romans 11, 1 through 6, just to talk about how, how it's God's work, not, not anything 
of ourselves. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God preserves his people. He secures a remnant Because he is gracious, he is merciful, he is in control. Not by our works, but only by his goodness and faithfulness. I'm going to continue here. Verse 13 says, uh, back in Ezra, leaving Romans, back in Ezra. After all that has come upon us for our evil deed and for our guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us a remnant as this. It's grace. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the definition of grace, receiving something that's undeserved. God has bestowed upon them so much grace. They, they have been punished less than their iniquities even deserve. And then he, he asks this question, shall we then break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Ezra's tone reminds me of Paul's tone when he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. When, when, we, when we're given, when we recognize that grace and we see that grace of God, we don't sin that we can just experience more grace. That's not how it works. We should see our sin. We should be disgusted by it. We should see the grace of God and go, you are so good. We can be so wicked. Forgive me. And we should repent and go the opposite direction. We don't sin to just keep on sinning and keep on sinning some more because it's like, well, we have grace anyway. That's no. That's not how it works. That grace should, should motivate us. That love should motivate us and push us towards obedience, not rebellion. And what we see as we flip over to chapter 10 is that this sin does bring about a response. So the beginning of chapter 9, the officials come. They tell Ezra, we got, there's some stuff going down here in Israel. People are, are marrying all kinds of people from the different lands. They're taking them away from God. Ezra then, so that there's a recognition of that sin. Then Ezra prays. There's a confession of that sin. In that prayer, he sees the goodness and the grace of God. And he's, this is a public prayer. This is, he's at the time of, of sacrifice. And after he, he prays, we find ourselves in chapter 10 here. Saying, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. And he said, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. 
Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and the children and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. There's a response. There's a response to put an end to this sin. There's the sin, there's the confession, there's the seeing the grace of God, now there's a response. There's something to be done about it. And at the beginning of the scene, we, we see people weeping together over this sin. Again, that communal aspect, this, the, everyone feeling the, the weight of what's happening. There's great conviction. There's weeping. Ezra is not alone in his grief. They're together. And then we see Shechaniah piping in. No idea if I'm saying that right, but it sounds good. He says, you know, essentially, we've, we've screwed up. Uh, we clearly see that now. Um, we, we shouldn't have, have married these people. This shouldn't have happened. But there is hope. Let us turn from our wickedness. Let us make a covenant with God. Let us put away all these wives and children. Let us do right before God. That's what repentance looks like. It's, it's not just feeling guilty and feeling bad, but it's like we, we, we have to do something about this. It's turning the other way. Guilt is just feeling bad, feel, feeling guilty. Um, repentance is, is in that doing something about it. Going, you know, I don't, I don't want to feel this way. I want to honor God. I'm going to do something. It's, it's not taking a half measure. I don't know if any of you watched the show Breaking Bad. Um, I'm going to use it as an illustration here. And if Luke can use the Godfather, I can use Breaking Bad. That's all I'm saying. In the, in the show, there's a character. His name's Mike Ehrmantraut. And he discusses the importance of taking no half measures um, when he's talking to the main character of the show, Walter White. And he tells this story. I won't tell the story. But he's telling this story about how he, when he was a cop, he got called to this, this, this abusive husband. There was a domestic call. And this guy just had a record of abusing his wife. And he, he gave the guy a warning. He knew there was further action that really needed to happen, but he gave the guy a warning. And the next call he gets is that that guy killed his wife. And, and the, the point of his story was that a half measure wasn't enough. He gave the warning that was a, a half measure and wasn't enough. When it comes to dealing with our sins, half measures aren't enough. And, and, and the covenant proposed to Ezra was no half measure. Now, another thing I want to make sure is clear in this sermon, because we could, you know, you could easily read this and go, okay, so is this what is supposed to happen um, in, in all of our lives? Because they just made a covenant and they're ditching their families. Um, the covenant made here, the events that happen in this passage are descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean by that is there's, in Scripture, there's all different kinds of genres. There's all different, different passages, and, and when we study it, we have to know, okay, what's, what's descriptive? What's just telling us about the event? And then what's prescriptive? What's telling us this is what we need to do? This is descriptive. This is a covenant between these people and God. That's their covenant. It's not, it's not a, a covenant that, that we've made. It's a covenant back then it's happened. We're just seeing it happen. That's descriptive. Then there's passages like matters of church discipline and how to go about that. And, and 
different ways to, to live out the gospel. Those are prescriptive passages. We take those and we go, this is how I should live. Love God, love others. Not descriptive, prescriptive. That's what we're supposed to do. This passage is descriptive. So what we see here in chapter 10 is an isolated event. And so what I don't want people to, to, to take away, especially for those here who are believers, married to non-believers, I'm not, I'm not saying because of this passage, go ditch your spouses. That's not going to happen. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, that would be completely contrary to what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, To the rest I say, not, not I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of, his, because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. There's a lot there in this passage. That's a sermon in and of itself. But, but the call here is that the, the believers who are married to non-believers is not to, to leave them, but to, to stay and to love them and to show them the love of Christ. Don't hear me preach this morning and take away I need, to, I need to divorce my unbelieving spouse. The marital situation that Paul is talking about here, he, he's saying remain faithful to that covenant you've made. Remain faithful. Be salt and light in that marriage. Serve your spouse as well. Demonstrate the love of Jesus day in and day out. What's happening in chapter 10 is descriptive. This is something they needed to do. The prescriptive principle comes in Romans from Paul, or 1 Corinthians from Paul, saying, stay, love your wives. Now, thankfully, for my sake, we have gone through 1 Corinthians at King's Chapel. Now, if you want a more in-depth look at this subject, I want to encourage you to go to our website, check out the, the sermon series, 1 Corinthians, Salt and Light to the City. Went through that book verse by verse, and then specifically, there's a sermon called Untying Relational Knots. It goes into this, this 1 Corinthians passage and deals with it in depth. I can't cover it all today. All I can say is, I don't want you to just go out and I don't want to see a bunch of divorces. Um, I'm, I want to see a bunch of people loving and ministering to their spouses. So uh, go check out, check out that sermon if you, if you really you want to know more about it. And it always, you know, questions for any of the pastor elders. Um, and that's for those that's for those here this morning who, who are in those marriages let the gospel show forth let God do a work through you however I, I also then need to address okay well, how about uh, the single believers the dating the not marrieds I'm not going to stand up here and advocate what's called missionary dating either you know I'm, there are there are some people who've been in relationships. One was a believer, one was a non-believer. Then God does an awesome work. They both become Christians. They get married and live happily ever after. That's great. God can do it. I say praise him. Um, but I also believe firmly in the principle of, of not yoking yourself with someone who's on a completely different wavelength in their worship. We're not, the, 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 the Second Corinthians 6 uh, the context is, is not necessarily dating relationships, but relationships in general. 
And that certainly applies to a marriage covenant, which holds a lot of weight. And being yoked to something referred to the animals who were pulling plows and wagons. If you have an ox yoked with a horse, they're, they're going to be pulling two different directions. There's going to be a constant tension. It's not going to work out. So for those who are not in that covenant of marriage, I, I say uh, the, the, the principle that needs to be applied is don't be in those relationships. Don't make a covenant with someone completely unequally yoked. And there's always the rationale, but, but, but I, can, I, I can minister, I can share the, yes, you can. But those same people can also rip you and tear you and ch- change your focus to something else. Do we want to be in relationships with people we can't worship with, people who we can't share the spiritual burdens of the heart with, can't serve the Lord with? So for those not in marriage, I, I say, be wise. Relationships are serious. Dating is serious. Marriage is very serious. Use wisdom. Find someone who loves Jesus. Be equally yoked. That aside over. I feel like I've covered my bases. <laughs> Almost done here. In the context of this Jewish remnant, uh, they saw the error of their ways. They were taking their sin seriously. They were doing something about it. 10.5 says, uh, Ezra proposed. He arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath so that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. They said it. So the oath is proposed. They go, okay, we're going to take it. Look, it's 10.12. It says, it is so. We must do as you have said. That's what the assembly answers in 10.12. So the oath is, the covenant's proposed. Ezra's like, this is what we're going to do. The people go, okay, let's do it. They're, they're taking action steps to, to conquer and to, to put this sin to death. It was an extreme action. Even just reading it, it's like, that's extreme. But that's the action that was necessary. They saw their sin, they knew what needed to happen, and they did it. They took no half measure. That's what we need to do. When we see our sin, when we see the grace of God, we need to put that sin to death. Pastor Matt Chandler of the Village Church down in Texas, he wrote a blog post, and in that post, he says, we must realize... That like a lion, sin is an apex predator, not a house pet. We wrongly treat our sin as a little pet under control. Then it turns on us and destroys us and we're left thinking, how did this happen? But it's completely predictable. We housed something that we couldn't control. And for all of our belief that I've taught it to sit, I've taught it to roll over and beg, it only takes the right circumstance for sin to turn and do what it does best, deceive us and destroy us. This is why grace-driven effort must be violent. And he's talking about in relationship to sin. We're not, we're not talking about like fist fights. Our putting an end to sin needs to be violent. He continues, it understands that the lion is out to destroy and it's seeking someone to devour. The person who understands this doesn't just starve the lion, he starves it to death. He doesn't strike at sin once, he strikes it and strikes it and strikes it and doesn't stop until it's dead. End quote there. 
Do we want to starve our sin to death? We all have sin. There's not a single person in this room who's not struggling with some kind of sin. It's there. It's present. What action steps are we taking to put that to death? We all have our different issues. You know what they are. Just me even saying that, it pops in your head. What steps are you taking to put an end to it? What people do you have in your lives who are going to call you on it and hold you accountable to it? Sins that range from from anywhere to from pornography to to being just lazy to to being a glutton. And if you're a lazy glutton, that's doubly worse because you're going to get all kinds of circumstances that come up on you. I know from experience. It's not that funny. But it's true. I was 25 years old and I got gout. Gout is like something like I shouldn't have to deal with yet. It's almost 400 pounds. That's letting sin consume me. Everyone in this room struggles with something. We need to take action steps to put that sin to death, to starve the lion. That's what we saw Israel do. What sin is in the way? We need to take the Word of God seriously this morning. We need to be a people who confess and repent of sin before God. In a little bit, the band will be coming up and they're going to lead us in song. And maybe you're just not ready to sing the words quite yet. Take the time that we have to spend getting yourself right before God. It's a tremendous gift and an opportunity that we have to go before the throne of grace and cast our sins at the feet of Jesus. He's the one who bore every sin that we're struggling with in this room. He bore it on the cross so that we could be forgiven. He conquered sin and death. So we can go to Him and we can repent and we can be forgiven. So that we, we don't have to sit in, just in, in, in this guilt and this shame, but because of that forgiveness, we can rejoice in the goodness and the grace of God. Seize the opportunity that's been given. Like Ezra, we need to humble ourselves before a holy, good, and gracious God, a loving God, confess sin, repent of it, and worship Him. And go out, live on mission. All these things, ministering to other people you know are broken. It's this big cycle. Let's put our sin to death. Let's rest in the gospel. Let's surrender it all to him. Let's pray. One of the greatest things in this world Father is knowing that you can just lift the burden of sin from us knowing that we can go before you and cast them down and be washed clean made white as snow Lord I pray that this morning that we would want to get that out of the way what we would confess, that we would repent, 
that we would look to you for how good you are, how awesome, how mighty you are. Work in our hearts this morning. Convict our souls. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.